0: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
0: It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And...
1: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we're here recording earlier than usual with two people on the West Coast, so thank you in advance to everyone. Uh, in Los Angeles, we have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. In other parts of California, we have our senior writer, Joanne Robinson. Actually, y'all, i in Austin, Texas. Oh my God, you are. You're in a whole different time zone. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, and holding down the fort in New York City, we have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Uh, So we're here gathered early and releasing early this week because we're doing a special Emmys episode. We all watched the Emmy Awards last night, I think, as award show junkies. We all surely enjoyed ourselves while also being uh, truly horrified by the Masked Singer characters that kept showing up on stage. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about the telecast and how it worked as an award show as well, but I feel like this is a much more exciting Emmys than usual, and I would chalk it all up to Fleabag. Like, that is by far the biggest story of the night, right?
2: Yeah, I feel like the Emmys are increasingly the hardest award show to predict, just because I, I don't know. Like I, I think that the, the more offerings there are in TV, you know, it, you can't really zero in on any one show. And I think you're right, Katie. Fleabag was, you know, I thought it was going to win a writing award and maybe uh, something else, but like it won so many things, and in so doing, denied Veep the victory lap that everyone assumed it was going to get. Yeah. And Julie Louis Dreyfus.
4: Yeah. Veep getting shut out is one of the craziest things I've ever seen at the Emmys. Like, I'm so delighted for Phoebe Waller-Bridge and all the Fleabag wins. I think it's great. But Veep not getting a single thing uh, when they did, uh, you know, an onstage ceremonial farewell for them is, is sort of stunning, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the same television academy that gave Modern Family like five Emmys in a row this decade. Like the Emmys track record for rewarding the same thing over and over again is so established that I don't think anyone thought they would break out of that pattern for this. Well,
3: and I think when you saw Tony Shaloub win an Emmy, you thought, oh, okay, the Emmys are up to their old thing. They just like, you know, there's like six people that they whose names they recognize and they keep giving them the Emmy. And so yeah. that would have suggested that Julie Louis-Dreyfus was going to win. Um, and, and it really, really didn't turn out that way. It's really interesting. Like, did they hate the season or were they just kind of like, you've got enough Emmys, you don't need any more, or it seems like they all flipped for Fleabag, but it seems like also, I mean, Joe Reed was pointing out like, where was all this last year? This is season two of Fleabag. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't get a you didn't have a sense coming in that like wow they loved it so much last year I guess maybe they started watching it this year it it was really it was really as you said at one point last night Katie all over the place
4: well I, I think it's I think Fleabag is definitely a show that has grown in its second season uh, from word of mouth I think I know a lot of people who watched both seasons in one sort of go. Uh, because you can, because it's a quick watch. And uh, so I, I think, yeah, season one didn't land the way that season two did. Thank you, Andrew Scott. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, I, yeah, I think it was a it was a bigger hitter this year. Um, I think, you know, Katie and I have been talking about this a little bit off podcast, but I think you can't underestimate the money involved, that, like, Amazon's pockets versus HBO's pockets, however deep HBO's pockets may be, might have won the day here.
3: But did you see? I, I think of Netflix campaigning like crazy. H- have you seen lots and lots and lots of expensive Amazon campaign work? Because I'm not sure that I have.
4: Uh, Katie I was just looking into this. There, were, there was this uh, Mazel Day that they did, um, that you know, jammed up traffic in Los Angeles, and then they did this pop up guinea pig cafe, pig cafe thing for Fleabag. So yeah. I think I don't know if dollar for dollar they match Netflix, though. I imagine they might, but. Um, I think uh, two things are in their favor, which is focus. Um, Netflix backed a bunch of different comedies, right? It did like Russian Doll, Glow, Kaminsky Method, Grace and Frankie all kind of got equal attention from them, whereas Amazon narrowed in on Fleabag and Maisel in a way that I – and tailored those FYC campaigns sort of specifically to the personalities of those shows versus Netflix they you know they they book these huge Raleigh studios in in Hollywood they've got these displays for all their shows but it's not sort of like quirky standouty kind of uh, spending the way that Amazon went for this year
3: right and when you think about Amazon's batting average for awards versus Netflix it's like you wouldn't want to be looking at those numbers today in the Netflix offices.
1: Well yeah, and that's the whole like Netflix model is, like that they want to flood the zone with all of the content you can possibly have. They release a new movie every week, they release a new show, and with movies, I think they've been able to really carefully decide like which ones get a theatrical release, which ones they'll put a campaign behind so you know They're not trying to, like, get an Oscar for the Adam Sandler movies. But for television, that whole effort really forces them to spread what they're able to do. And and I wonder if they're going to have to reconsider that because they're going up against literally the richest man on the planet to spend money on these FYC campaigns. So how do you compete?
4: Yeah, and and we should also say that, you know, technically, HBO won the most awards, Netflix won the second most awards, and Amazon won the third most awards when you count the Creative Arts Emmys, which we should – but the narrative of the night definitely belonged to Amazon, uh, because all those those flea bag wins felt so unexpected and exciting, and the momentum. And so, like, despite the fact that the numbers actually back HBO and Netflix, I mean, this felt like an Amazon win narratively.
3: We, we should keep it in mind, but I feel like uh, they're two different things I, to me. The total number of Emmys and the and the Emmys that actually get given out on in the broadcast are are you know they're sort of two different contests in a way.
4: Right, but HBO still got the most number... Technically, the most number of Emmys on Sunday night. It just doesn't feel that way. Right, right,
2: right, right. You know? Yeah, I went to both the HBO and Netflix parties here in L.A. last night. Um, I was going to go to the Amazon one, but for various reasons, you know, I, I didn't. But, um, you know, the HBO party was this huge event at the Pacific Design Center, um, kind of out on this plaza, and it was different uh, tiers and, and, and all these... There was a grooming station and a makeup booth, and of you know all it was a, it was a pretty lavish party, let's say. And I, I I turned to a friend who I was there with, and I said, "This feels like the party where they thought they were winning both big top prizes." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Netflix party, while lively, was in a huge space that was only maybe half filled, and that also felt like even though you saw Jason Bateman walking around with his Emmy or Julia Garner both from Ozark w- with her Emmy. I, I did talk to people there who were like, wait, but what what did they win? You know, like the, the profile of their night was not clear, even at their own party. And whereas I feel like at the Amazon one, it probably almost assuredly, you know, they had a narrative that you could really like be excited about being, you know, present for.
1: Well, and Joanna, as you're writing right now about kind of how it was a big night for streamers as expected, and the landscape is going to be so different next year. Like, not just because Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus are going to be out there, but like Netflix is going to have the crown next year. Like, HBO isn't going to have Game of Thrones. Like, there's so much flux from year to year. Fleabag is never going to win another Emmy, which is like one of the many things that makes it such an unusual winner. Like, like especially comedy categories, you get the same winner year after year after year. This is such an unusual winner there. And it will be really interesting to see who jumps in now that Fleabag and V out of the competition. I
4: mean, that might be might be another reason why Fleabag won, right? It's like their only chance to not goof up and honor this show that everyone likes so much. You know what I mean? Like, it, yes, it was their last chance to honor Veep, but they had already honored Veep so much. So this yeah. is their only chance because there's going to be no more Fleabag. And um, that narrative is interesting too to me because um, Hulu was the bell of the ball just a couple years ago with Handmaid's Tale and Handmaid's Tale was only like partially eligible this year. But... The idea that um, if all your wins come from one show, that can be a really precarious place to sit. But HBO had a pretty wide spread in terms of, you know, they have Last Week with John Oliver, they've got Succession, um, you know, something else that I'm forgetting, and Thrones, Chernobyl. Oh Chernobyl, Chernobyl, obviously. Chernobyl and Thrones. So they had the widest spread of shows bringing them in trophies, and I think that's good news for their future. Even if Thrones is going away.
1: Can I use uh, Chernobyl to pivot to Thomas Lennon for a second? The most uh, controversial <laughs> element of the Emmys broadcast, I think. So he was—he's a comedian. He was doing kind of the uh, the talking over people as they walk up to the stage with uh, jokes that I mostly found funny, and then I think half of my Twitter feed wanted to burn him alive. Uh, where did we all land on this?
2: I liked it. I thought it was lively in a show that otherwise wasn't. You know, I think the Oscars last year or earlier this year squeaked by without a host in a way that we were like, oh, that was interesting. But I think I think the Emmys last night really suffered from not having a kind of unifying sense of humor, Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought that Thomas Lennon, in whatever weird way, and maybe not everything was perfectly synced, like timing-wise, to like when people were walking on stage, or like it it felt a little bit like uh, out of nowhere, this voice suddenly arrived. But I thought I don't know, I was amused, you know. I I thought it was fine, Um, you know. I think it's it was certainly. Uh, it was something. It was. It was. It was a bit of a perspective beyond, like, hey, we're Fox and we're having wrestling and sing- mass singer coming soon, so stay tuned. You know.
1: Yeah.
3: I thought it was perhaps a noble but failed experiment. I mean, he he was funny, especially on Chernobyl. That the line about uh, Chernobyl was filmed, uh, you know, in Studio City, California, in front of a live audience, and
1: that um, line made me laugh so yeah. hard.
3: Yeah. Um. But also, like. I was watching with my wife and she was like, wait, what? Like it didn't, it didn't, I think it was, it was like not necessarily, I think for a certain crowd of comedy, you know, insiders, it was funny. And then I'm guessing for a huge group of people, it was like, what the hell is going on here? I couldn't really hear it half the time. Um, And I do feel like there's something a little bit rude I don't know. It felt a little rude, maybe, but maybe I'm being an old stick in the mud of, like, at this moment when the person is exulting and coming down to sort of, like, make jokes that quasi make fun of them. Um, I don't know. I
2: think I would not—I would not—I hope they don't do it again. Well, if they do it again, they could at least have someone like a host explain kind of at the top of the show. I know that the people in the theater were not going to hear this voice, or at least I don't think they were. Maybe they were. Yeah. But— but, like, even so, just for the audience at home, like, it did just at first come out of nowhere. And you were like, I don't – am I – like, is there, like, a weird other audio feed kind of mixing with Fox's broadcast that yeah, I don't understand? Yeah, right. I mean right, – right. Maybe you could do it again
3: and and lean into it more. The way it was, it felt – it did feel like somebody had just kind of, like,
2: hacked into the audio um, rather, rather than <laughs> it was an actual part of the show. L- like that weird Max Headroom thing from Chicago from years ago when <laughs> someone just broke into the feed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Terms apply.
1: Well, the uh, the element that I think we can all hope they'll bring back for the Oscars and everything else is the presence of Thingamajig on stage. Richard, mm, I, like, I, convinced you to write, <laughs> I convinced you to write an entire piece about this somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I, that was I, so weird.
2: I sat in a hotel room in West Hollywood while a bunch of Fabulously speedoed pool goers, you know, beneath me, you know, hung out by the Ah, pool. And and I wrote about the (laughs) standard. It was, yeah, it was quite an experience. Um, Yeah, I mean, that was something that I found both depressing in that this is the Fox Broadcasting Company, which is still retained by Rupert Murdoch as part of the Fox News kind of profile, uh, or portfolio, rather, um, where he's, you know, he got rid of 20th Century Fox, the film division and the, f- the television producing division. Um, so the, the, this new this network, they're calling it kind of New Fox, is going to be a different thing, and uh, it's going to be largely focused, from what I'm told, on reality programming and um, live sports, which are, you know, very lucrative and, and easy to... Well, at least in reality sense, easy to produce and, and not not too expensive. Sports rights cost a uh, you know a zillion dollars, but but you know this was their first chance to really advertise that, and it just was so interesting how it offset you know things like flea bag winning and Chernobyl and all these you know really respectable, high minded things. And then in between those wins, they were like, here's thingamajig to like remind you about this shit. You know, like it just felt very um, honest in a way that I, I kind of appreciated. It was like, yeah, this is the way that some broadcast television is heading because, the, you know, the cable and streaming have been eating their lunch for years now. And um, or or I guess, you know, certain broadcast shows still do very well. But like, I don't know, it just felt like a weird glimpse of the future to me.
1: When was the last time a major broadcast show really won a big Emmy? Like, I'm looking back. Like, Veep has been win- winning the category in comedy, and then Maisel since 2015. Like, drama has really belonged to cable for, like, a decade now. Um, and we looked up the Fox nominations, Tally Richard. Like, they weren't nominated for a single show during the actual broadcast, which is part of what made it so surreal that they were airing it. It's like, here's old television telling you all about new television.
2: Yeah, and they, they had Glee in 24, you know, not that long ago. Like, yeah. they used to be in the mix for things, um, and some of their comedy certainly, you know, Arrested Development. But yeah, it was like, you know, This Is Us, I think is 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 one of the few things kind of keeping networks in the Emmys, uh, the good place uh, a little bit as well. But like, I just, uh, yeah, it just felt this kind of like complete... I mean, granted, also very Murdochian, kind of in its shamelessness, like just concession to like the, yeah, we're not we're not you guys anymore. Like we're we're this now, and well, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll show your award show, but like we're not. You know, that's a whole different thing. That's for a bunch of like you know coastal snobs. Here, here's the meat and potatoes for everyone else who I don't think was even watching the Emmys.
3: It reminded yeah. me of you know we excerpted uh, back in July. A book, an oral history of the Trump uh, rise called The Method to the Madness by Alan Salkin and Aaron Short. And it's so crazy and sort of darkly funny. They talk about the escalator announcement. And, you know, according to these people, at least they were all very self-aware about the fact that it was going to be totally repulsive and disgusting to millions of Americans. And they were excited about it. And that kind of was the vibe that I got off the Masked Singer thing. It was Fox (laughs) just being like, oh, my God, I can't believe they gave us the keys to this thing for one night. Let's just be as disgustingly Fox as we can because no (laughs) one can stop us. Um, but I am looking forward to the reveal of Thingamajig, because I understand it's Kieran Culkin and Lachlan Murdoch together inside the <laughs> suit.
2: <laughs> the rare double mess. singer. Yeah. Of- <laughs>
1: Um, one of the other like weird show elements of this to me was the Game of Thrones tribute, and then later the Veep tribute. They kind of broke up halfway through the middle of the show. And Joanna, I was talking to you during it about how just like incredibly awkward it felt to like eulogize Game of Thrones, especially because Bran, um, Isaac Hempstead Wright, was not on stage, even though he won the Game of Thrones. Um, Joanna, how did that strike you? Um, yeah, I
4: don't know. I, I don't know how the uh, that went over with you guys where you were watching, but it. Did not seem to go over super well in the room. I mean, okay, let, let me be let me be fair. There was, I think, the first standing ovation of the night was for the Game of Thrones cast. Um, it was really fun to see Gwendolyn Christie get the largest cheer of all from the crowd. Um,
1: but she looked the, like visibly surprised by that too. It was really charming.
4: <laughs> it was very sweet. Um, and Amelia Clark got a big cheer, we should say as well. But um, you know the. The setup for it itself just seemed a little off and odd. And, uh, you know, the lines that they had to read about the show seemed a little stilted. So I, for viewing audiences at home, it seemed a little um, off kilter. And then especially when Thrones made kind of a... I mean, is it fair to say it was a muted showing when they won Best Drama? I think so, because they had an opportunity to win so many more awards uh, last night and they didn't. So, you know, they, they picked up the expected prize for Dinglage. They picked up the top prize, which, you know, I don't know that I can argue with whatever my feelings were about the final season, given what it meant impact-wise to television. But, you know, they lost out in... in. It's crazy to me that Peter Dinklage is still the only actor to ever win an Emmy for Game of Thrones. And yeah. four times, you know, so...
2: To me, it had the weird, like, ring of... of that it was less about celebrating the show... For its artistic merits, which you know technically the Emmys are supposed to be doing, and more about like you made us so much money and now you're going, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> thank you, like please don't leave, you know kind of thing. Like it, it felt a little sweaty in that way. Um, and 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 Veep to a, to, to the to kind of Veep tribute to a lesser extent, you know, um, I'm sure the economics of that are pretty good too. But like you know, Game of Thrones was a global phenomenon, unlike we've seen in a long time. And 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 I, I it felt like they they were sort of thanking their their you know king you know or something who was who had who was retiring or something it, it felt a little bit like kissing a ring i don't know um mm-hmm. it, it, it did sit, it did sit strangely um and and you know again to go back to the hbo party for all of game of thrones wins like it was not as celebratory a mood maybe as 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 there could have been
1: well, and also like since game in the months since Game of Thrones went off the air, it feels like it's been off the air forever. Like that last season was such kind of a mess creatively, and like the the discourse just got so exhausting that like having you almost feel like all of them coming back on stage were just like, oh, let it be over. Like I want to move on with my life.
3: It's a, you're so right. I was ju- I was just thinking that actually, and I think that it's be- it's because the season wasn't good. You know, and I think people just got left with a. It, it really squandered so much enthusiasm and excitement. It's too bad. I think in the long run, we'll look back and, and admire the show, but I, I think there's a long hangover from it just being such a letdown.
4: I think there is a sour taste for a lot of us who covered it and who watched it, um, but I, I did hear from people who uh, were on the show that they were all excited to see each other again. So I don't think that they that they themselves were like, "Ugh, can't believe we have to do this." You know, they were excited to go. They're, I'm sure, excited to have won the biggest. You know Emmy of the night that that at least is not a full embarrassment for them. You know what I mean. At least yeah. they like walked away with that. Uh, but I think for I agree with you guys for all of us for me who has talked about Game of Thrones almost nonstop for years, I have not wanted to talk about it much for the last few months because <laughs> you know or or even talk about entertain ideas of of this prequel series that they're doing because I was just like I need a break from Westeros please uh, you know which is why why we can be so excited about something like Fleabag because it just felt so fresh and different and new and exciting and deserving of all the awards it got so that was that was my takeaway from the night with the exception of maybe Game of Thrones winning the biggest prize I feel like everything that was exciting felt deserved everything surprising felt deserved and then there are a few rubber stampers like SNL, where I'm just like, Ugh, all right, fine. You know, SNL had a terrible season last season, but it always wins this category, so fine. You know. Well,
3: and I know you stand Ozark, Joanna. So that's great I.
4: To- I love. Well, you know, I love Julia Garner. It's true. And, you know, Jason Bateman, Jason Bateman won, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen the slow-mo reaction of Jason Bateman winning, but it is a thing of beauty because he like, he's like, I'm sorry. It is a flawless reaction what? shot. What? <laughs> Laura Linney is like, what? In Tony is what <laughs> Laura Linney is giving us. But, um, but you know, that was a result of three entries from Game of Thrones eating each other in that category, yeah. I, I have to think, you know. So, uh Yeah. But I'm always on the lookout from that for that, uh, Mike, since you raised this on the podcast a couple of years ago, that idea of like the double threat or the triple threat or the celebrity director, or the celebrity writer. And it really does seem to shine through at the Emmys.
1: Yeah, I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is such an irresistible figure for that because she's like so – what she has made is so good. She's so charming. She's so interesting to talk to and like to like look at her and be like, you just made this perfect thing. Like you want to just throw Emmys at her.
4: Uh, do we want to talk about the Michelle Williams speech?
1: Yeah. I always w- I just wanted to ask what other victories that we felt like were, like, universally good. And I feel like Michelle Williams having an Emmy is something we can all get behind, too.
4: Yeah. And, I mean, I yeah. think she made made really good use of her moment. Sorry, Richard. Go ahead.
2: No. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, obviously um, she didn't thank us. But I think the fact that we had her on the podcast is what got her the win, obviously. <laughs> I <laughs> um, think I feel very comfortable taking credit for that. Um, but yeah, I think like you said, Joanna, like in a show that felt you know very sweet good you know nice speeches, very happy. Uh, Michelle Williams came up there and actually did say something about you know pay inequity, especially for women of color compared to their white male colleagues and and and, and it felt um, pertinent. To the moment, and it also, I think, recognized that like something like when they see us walked in that theater with eleven nominations and left with, I think maybe one or two. I mean, and Gerald Jer- Jerome won, but like you know, and and like I think that th- there there was a sense of um, disparity in, in in the broadcast last night, and and even though Michelle Williams herself is. You know, a a, a white woman who's been, you know, famous for a long time and is was arguably one of the bigger kind of quote movie stars in the room. I think that it was great that she used that victory and that platform to sort of mention other people in the room, either you know, kind of indirectly. Um, It felt it felt really good. I don't know. It felt kind of righteous, and I I think the audience responded in kind.
4: And it also felt very. It's it's both personal to Michelle Williams, right? Because as she mentioned backstage. Uh, there was this, you know, pay equity scandal around all the money in the world, where Mark Wahlberg got like 1.5 million, and she got a thousand dollars or something like that to do something really crazy. To do a reshoot, yeah. 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 So, so you know, that was a personal thing that she went through and experienced, but also topical to the piece of art she made, because this uh, show was about Gwen Verdon, like, getting her moment in the spotlight after being, you know, sort of overshadowed by her uh, creative partner, Bob Fosse. So, you know, it's it, it was a really good marriage of—it didn't feel sort of out of place. I will say that while I really, really appreciate what Patricia Arquette said— that that one did feel slightly out of place, but, like, I'm not going to be mad at Patricia Arquette for stumping for trans rights on stage, of course. That's great, but it's not—it didn't have the same organic um, flow that Michelle's speech did, you know?
0: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New
2: Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
1: Yeah. And there's, I mean, Billy Porter also kind of took advantage of his moment. I think, I think the stat is that he is the first openly gay actor of color to win the best drama Emmy. I feel like there has to be like, he might be the first openly gay actor of color to win any Emmy. I don't know the details. Anyway, it it was like a build as a history making moment. And I feel like he really um, kind of stepped up to that moment in his speech.
2: Yeah. And it was also, you know, Billy Porter winning is so interesting. The Fleabag wins are interesting. Like, and then you have on the other side of things like Maisel, you know, Alex Borstein winning again and Tony Shalhoub winning and, you know, I felt felt like Tony Shaloub won an Emmy every year for a decade for Monk, which actually I <laughs> think he only won three or four. But, but you know, there, there was a really interesting bifurcation between what you would kind of assume to be the traditional conservative, you know, we just, you know, hit the button for the name we recognize kind of voting. And then this other stuff that's really interesting and I just, I, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to this question, but like, is it just a different kind of part of the academy that's voting for things like billy porter and you know fleabag or or are those kind of impulses existing within individual members i don't know it's just i thought that that was so sort of fascinating to consider you know because michelle williams gave an exciting speech but by some other sort of standards she was a safe win you know she she's an established movie star she's um you know been a you know, got her start in a big way on television. Like, it was a pretty... She's a pretty familiar entity um, to vote for, uh, and she's in a thing about showbiz. So, yeah, I'm just... I don't know. I'm very curious about what the kind of, you know, makeup of the Academy right now, not just in terms of actual membership, but in terms of, I don't know, ideology in a way, because last night felt very... almost, you know, cut in 2
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It did feel like they were spreading the wealth a, a little bit, too. Um, and I don't know how... I, I don't know if voters in the academy would ever think that way but and it, but it it had the little bit of a vibe of that.
1: Yeah, when you see like Jerrell Jerome winning when when they see us didn't win anything else you get the sense of like people like that show they wanted to give it something so they rallied around him which was kind of hard to argue with. His that was
3: I had to be I think that was my favorite moment and I was so glad when um you know the formerly known as Central Park 5 uh, now known as the exonerated 5 when they stood up and you just think that, you know, thank God they got this moment. They came all the way there, but what an incredible moment of of triumph for everybody involved in that in that uh, project. And he just gave a terrific speech. So that that was, to me was the standout.
4: Yeah, something that we don't have the full shape of yet, uh, and we may never is this idea of how much. Block voting did or did not affect the Emmys this year. Block voting, you know, people voting in a, sort of, in a group, in a quid pro quo fashion, is not supposed to be a lot at the Emmys, but of course is a lot at the Emmys. I was reading some reports about how on certain studio lots, they'll have banners being like, reminder, if you are a so-and-so employee, vote for this sort of thing. But there was, seriously, <laughs> there was seriously That but there sounds was a like scandal. what we do for the Webbys. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a scandal earlier this year where some uh, people in the acting branch, I believe it was, were um, sort of openly trying to engage in some black voting on a, on a closed Facebook group. And they got kicked out of being able to vote by the television Academy. So the television Academy was quote unquote cracking down on black voting, you know, making an example of these uh, actors. And uh, I don't know if that spooked the, the usual black voting uh crew and perhaps that's why we got such like a interesting scattershot uh, result this year like maybe that actually did work and people didn't oh engage God. in block voting I don't you know. You think
3: Julia louis Dreyfus's block voting cabal was disrupted <laughs>
4: <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't have, uh, you know, Katie won't let me print this because I don't know concrete numbers to back it up, and I respect her as an editor <laughs> for that. But, um, I will. But you can <laughs> I say it. Definitely, totally just outlets.
3: talk about it on a podcast. What could go wrong? <laughs> I'll
4: just say it on a podcast. A, a couple outlets have included in their reports, and I don't have the concrete data, so take it with a grain of salt. But reputable outlets have reported that HBO has the biggest number of voters in the Television Academy, and so if that's the case. Then I'm surprised they couldn't get their, uh, you know, themselves together to vote for Veep.
2: Um, well, so what so. happened actually, I can, I can, this is a kind of a little goldman exclusive. So I had been running a thing where if I would Photoshop an actor into <laughs> like a water polo team or something, and that's how I would get them the, the win... You and know, into USC,
1: um, right? Like yeah, they got well, a scholarship both. for the process. Yeah.
2: But that, I, got, I got busted, so I couldn't, <laughs> oh, I couldn't yeah. do my usual thing. You, so that's well, why JLD didn't win. You, yeah. you, heard it here you got first. paid
1: well in the process,
2: though. <laughs> oh, I'm very rich.
1: Um I mean when you talk about block voting, which like, I admit I don't fully understand how it works, just because I don't understand like what it means for HBO to have voters. Like is it people who have like been on Deadwood once or is it like executives? Um, but I also think, you know, this whole theory that everyone wants their show to be picked up by Netflix or Amazon, like that might be a new factor in this. Like if those are the ones who are spending all the money and they can get you paid better for your pitch or whatever, like why wouldn't you like try to, you know, give a boost to Mrs. Maisel or something like that? Everyone wants to be Philly Phoebe Waller Bridge.
3: I also wonder if Amazon weirdly benefits from the Netflix resentment just by virtue of being smaller. And not sort of threatening to fully eat the rest of Hollywood. Um, so it's kind of like I, I feel like people certainly we see this in the Oscars that people resent Netflix and we we discuss it as a hurdle, and and I wonder if in the TV world too people are kind of like, do I, am I really going to vote for the Netflix show? Um, but that but that may create an opening for Amazon, which people don't think of as the same way. Amazon Prime is not is not the
2: sort of number one threat to the old way of life or whatever. I think it is interesting, Mike, like, I think that's for sure, you know, a a kind of anxiety out here. Um, And yet you talk to other people, I won't name names, but like people I spoke to last night who are sort of more on the creative side of things, directors and whatnot, and they feel very sanguine about Netflix because Netflix is making, letting them do what they want to do, and you know. Um, but I, I'm yeah. sure on the sort of more business side of things, and you know, people who work for networks rather than work for a project, um, yeah, there there is some some timidity about like this this great thing kind of consuming everything so i and i think that like that's kind of go, speaks back to the fox thing with the thing Majig. like i i really think we are in this crux point especially on the you know eve of disney plus and all that like uh, this is a this is a, a an industry and an academy that's really at this quaking point and it's really grappling with itself and and i think that's maybe why we saw a sort of scattered mix of winners because certain people are doubling down on the traditional like stuff and other people are are just trying to be more experimental and and grow with the times. And I think we're going to see that for a few more years at least to come. Well,
3: yeah, your piece raises a really interesting question, which is what is a broadcast network for? And it's probably for sports and other live events and reality shows, you know, and and all this kind of stuff that we think of as prestige, Emmy-worthy content, it's, uh, you know, it seems to be migrating to the platforms. So it's really interesting because, yeah, to make the broadcast economics work, you need a huge audience at the same time, and uh, there aren't that many ways to do that these days.
2: And maybe if you're an Academy member who has, you know, worked at a network and, you know, HBO and one-time Showtime and FX have been eating your awards lunch for years now— maybe you're just like, eh, m- more like whatever about Netflix. Whereas if you're like someone who works at HBO and, you know, maybe you're, you're less inclined to vote for a Netflix thing because it feels like a much fresher threat. I don't know. I mean, we're not now just inferring psychology of people, but like... Well, and, you just, yeah, you
3: know. no, I think you're right. And the last thing I'll say about HBO is, is there a Plepler AT&T effect here? You know, that was mm. the other question I had is like, was there... You know, I, I don't. I've seen Richard Plepler work a room. You guys probably have too. He is, you know, he's like wrapping his arm around your uh, neck and whispering <laughs> in your ear, and uh, and he's a former PR guy. You know, he came out of the comms department. So I do think that there's a certain, you know, they probably feel a loss. And I do think there's a question in general about, like, where is HBO going in this new AT&T land? Uh, Are they really going to be the kind of big overachiever in the prestige award space or are they going in a different direction?
4: There's also some behind the scenes uh, changes both this year and, and next that um, we might want to mention. One is, I mean, this they're both um, byproducts of Peak TV, right? So one is, is this... um, I guess it's not new this year, but it's just ever growing, which is this overwhelm by Emmy voters of the sheer number of nominees that they have to comb through. You know, there's like the ballot they got this year had 108 candidates for comedy series, 165 candidates for drama series, and 107 candidates for variety special. And so trying to comb through all of that. Maybe in the past, if you were a a really goody two-shoes Emmy voters, you tried to watch everything, and now it's impossible. And so now maybe you just give up and and vote for things that either everyone's talking about, which is Fleabag, or the thing that everyone watched, which was Game of Thrones. And then another thing that's changing currently is uh, because of peak TV – The, uh, uh, FYC screeners are being phased out by the Television Academy. So next year there's a full ban. They're no longer sending out physical screeners. They're only doing digital screeners. So this year people started to send out digital screeners, a few people. Amazon and Netflix did not, but, um, you know, they're, they're trying, they're in the midst of phasing that out. And one thing that I thought was really interesting in a report I read, um, is that if they send out digital screeners, People who run Emmy's campaigns can see which screeners Emmy voters are actually watching. And tailor their campaigns to those shows, and apparently they already do that with uh, TV critics uh, monitoring which screeners we're watching. So you know that's it's just you know the digital age, and this is more info that they're getting to tailor their to narrow and tailor their campaigns, which is good news for them, but bad news for maybe some of the smaller shows that maybe would have come through uh, in an era when people could physically watch all of the things that were on offer.
2: I'm just glad they're the only digital media company that's monitoring what we watch. Like that's no one else is doing that, right? <laughs> that's it. That's Surely. it.
1: <laughs> um, all right. Any final big winners you guys wanted to shout out or felt particularly excited about, or like moments that that stood out for you? Ben Wishaw. Oh yeah, Ben Wishaw. Yeah. He has an Emmy. Who would have guessed? I was
3: just happy to see glow. something for that for that show. Um, a very
2: English scandal,
3: which I liked, and I, a lot of people don't know it exists. So that's a good thing to watch. For episodes. Well, it was an
2: int- it was an interesting thing when he won because you know when they announce the names of the nominees, like you hear the the audience at the theater like whoop it up, you know. He got like no whooping it up at all, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then won, <laughs> so, which was like a really interesting juxtaposition. Um, but yeah, I think that was such a strong show, and and with two really great performances, him and Hugh Grant, um, that again with the spreading of the wealth, that was like. Well, you know, and and one for you, Glenn Coco. Very like you know, for for, for that. <laughs> like I, I, I thought that was that that was good. I, I kind of like that. I mean, I think that maybe we were starved for a sort of unifying narrative last night uh which makes it harder to write about them so you know that's our sort of own selfish interest but like um yeah it's great that someone like ben was won. i also you know i know that it's not a new thing but it it was it was cool to see drag race win and be able to go up on stage and 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 sort of talk about their show and and which has been such a phenomenon that has changed people's lives uh either indirectly or directly um in, in a way that i think few reality shows have in a long time
3: Oh, I think the narrative is Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a humongous hitter and is going to be um, inescapable for the next, like, 40 years. That's, 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 to (laughs) me, the narrative. To
1: all of our benefit.
3: Yeah.
4: Well, Jodie Comer's win is also kind of a Phoebe Waller-Bridge win, right? Yeah. Because Jodie Comer's character was, you know, adapted from the book by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, she didn't write the second season. She she helped create Villanelle, and Vill- Villanelle feels like a very Phoebe Waller-Bridge character. So, um, yeah, it's great great stuff. I'm really excited.
1: Um, And I tweeted about this too, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge was there with Martin McDonough, who she's uh, been dating for some time. And I was thinking about them as a power couple. And then the coming Oscar season with Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig will both have movies out there. So it's it's a great time if you are a big fan of very smart writers and creators uh, being in relationships with each other.
4: <laughs> the uh the last I guess the shout, last shout out I wanna give is is to circle back to Billy Porter uh and mention what a number of people mentioned on Twitter last night, which is that he is now just an O Shy from an egot. Oh. So um you know Him and Limo Billy- Miranda both, right? Put Billy Porter on Egot Watch. Here he comes. Uh, yeah, and uh, Ben Wishaw is like, what, a, a G, an O, and a T shy? But like, I don't know. The T feels inevitable. The OC feels possible. Let's let's look out for a Ben Wishaw uh, album and then we'll be all set. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, in the same way that it's weird Michelle Williams now has an Emmy, but not an Oscar, it's weird that Ben Wishaw has an Emmy, but not a Tony. Yeah, it's very weird. He's got a Golden Globe. That's nice. Hey. Um, All right. Well, I mean, do do we want to say like good Emmys? We feel like show all over the place, but uh, maybe there's more excitement than not from from this night.
2: I mean, I can't really say good or bad. I think that what they were was very reflective of right now, you know, where where everyone's feeling a little scattershot, not really sure what um, kind of plot line to follow. And, you know, I think that, like, maybe Ozark winning awards was because, you know, Game of Thrones people were splitting the vote or whatever. But, like, that felt like a very concession to the dad shows. And then Maisel felt like a concession to something else and et cetera, et cetera, down the line. So I, I think that maybe that is the maybe more democratic future that we look, we're looking forward to with the Emmys. I will say, though, I do think it needs a host.
1: Mm-hmm. It would be very interesting to see how the Oscars uh, fare in the wake of this
4: yeah I say bad show, good winners. that's what Fair. I say
3: yeah, yeah, I think the yeah. show was a hot mess with two T's in the word hot <laughs> but um but I think that yeah, the, it was a good it was a good spread of winners. I mean, um, I think you got the sense that they were actually like watching the shows and paying attention, um which is not always the case at the Emmys in my in my experience,
1: yeah. Um, well next week we'll be back to talking about movies it might be a little while before we deep dive into television again um, although you can hear Joanna and Richard talk about television every week on Still Watching there's a plug for you mm-hmm. um, and you can succession. yeah exactly um, you can find uh, tons and tons of Emmy coverage on VF.com from uh, all of us and our colleagues so please go there check it out um, and you can find all of us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own I'm at Katie Rich uh, Richard Rylaws and Joanna wrote this, and Mike
2: Mike
3: underscore Hogan.
1: This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of what the critics will say when we add thingamajig to next week's Little Gold Men goes to Mike Hogan.
3: A noble but failed experiment.
0: You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper, with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.